It's not cranberry sauce. It's a podcast. Oh, yeah. Welcome, y'all, to another episode of Watch If You Dare. It's totally after Thanksgiving by the time this episode drops, and I just realized that in my head, but this joke doesn't get run into the ground. So <laughs> with that, joining me as always is my co-host, Aaron, and we have another returning guest, the lovely Heather, his better half. Hi. How are you guys doing? Good. I'm definitely the better half. <laughs> yeah, I, I I wouldn't disagree with that. <laughs> She's absolutely my better half. I would second that. <laughs> Glad we're all on the same page. And like always, what uh, what horror have y'all been digging into that our listeners might want to check out? It has been a little while since I have watched anything horror, but I have been listening to a lot of episodes of Attack of the Queer Wolf podcast. That podcast is queer hosts talking about different horror movies, what they think about it, whether or not it's good queer representation or not. It's a really great podcast. Alright, so I'm bisexual, and this is the first podcast that I've listened to that specifically has queer hosts and is discussing so many queer issues, and I think I like that aspect of it almost more than the horror aspect. Obviously, the horror stuff is great, but being able to, like, listen to other queer folks talk about one of your interests is really cool, and it almost feels like you're sitting there hanging out with them. So I have been binging episodes of that a little bit, so if you're looking for other podcast recommendations, Attack of the Queer Wolf, it's put out, I believe, by Blumhouse house right it is yeah it's yeah, it's put it's up great. a blumhouse and it's kind of a like partner podcast with shockwaves and mcgarris's podcast gotcha so they're kind of all under the same umbrella i've never heard of this podcast so i think i might have to check this one out i think i've mentioned it on the show previously but it's it's really solid it's a lot of employees who work for blumhouse in various capacities and it's just them doing their own show with the lgbtq plus themes that heather mentions they typically do kind of what we do where they take a movie every episode and they typically have guests on. I actually just listened to an episode today with Brian Fuller and um, Nancy Allen. Um, that was real fun. They were talking about Dress to Kill and uh, now I'm probably going to go back and rewatch that relatively soon. And if uh, if you have mentioned it on an earlier episode, shows how much I actually listen to you as a co-host. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, other than that, I've been playing uh, a lot of the new Pokemon game, which is about as far from horror as you can get, oh. I guess. <laughs> we'll return to that in a couple of seconds, but continue. <laughs> I do have a golet on my team right now, so at least I do have a ghost-type Pokemon that I'm uh, stomping around the Galar region with. Uh, so yeah, I've been playing a lot of Pokemon and watching my favorite television show, which is probably a horror show to Aaron, which is 90 is. Day Fiance and the various spinoffs. It's <laughs> the worst. It's terrifying. Is it a CW show? or No, or a it's, it's a TLC Reality. show. Oh, worse, okay, gotcha. Which, yeah. like, as, as much as we talk about, like, exploitation and horror, this is so much more exploitative and it's so real life funny. people. Yeah. It's it's like absolutely the worst trash. Yeah. Like so, I can't. It drives me up the wall. Honestly, <laughs> 90 Day Fiance is it's a TLC show about people who like apply for the K one visa to come to the United States. Like they have a foreign partner that lives elsewhere, and then there's the American that they're in love with, and so it's about their relationships and trying to come over and get the visa. Ninety <laughs> percent of the time, it's gold diggers. <laughs> well, I was about to say it's a show all built to face male order. You would be surprised how many women are on the show, though. Like no, that's their, that's like, why. I I didn't say mail order bride. I'm saying <laughs> yeah, mail okay, order. Yeah, good point. Look at me. Mail order assuming. spouse in general. I would assume that they found a way to show just how many groomsmen and other people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. hop totally. on that. Oh yeah, and the, I've learned that there are so many dating websites out there that are like for specific very like specific. countries. So yes. you can go on Anastasia date to date like Russians, Russians. or Ukrainians. <laughs> 
yeah. And there's one for, like, Colombians and, like, Filipinos. And, like, they're, yeah. So you can just pick your poison, I guess. Which, <laughs> where are you interested? You know what would be fucked up if this show caught heat because they were unexpectedly, they didn't realize they were using, like, a human trafficking website <laughs> to, like, get some of these people? Yeah, that would be a mess. That has not happened thus far. I think there's, like, seven seasons. That we know of. It's not like they would air it if that was the case. True. Right? True. <laughs> Holy True. shit. There has been one. This was in, like, season four. It was, the guy's name was Mark, and he had a wife who was 19 or something. And he had a previous Filipino ex-wife. And when this new girl came over, and I, God bless her, I don't remember her name, but, like, he gave the girl the same car that his ex-wife used to drive and, like, the same ring that she used to wear. And it was just, like, oh, such no. wow. this, like, creepy, like, replacement situation. And that poor girl, she doesn't have social media anymore. She's, like, not on Instagram. Like, everybody on that show is, like, thirsty for fame. And she's not on there. So everybody's a little bit concerned about her. So if there is a 90 Day Fiance horror story, it is this whole girl and Mark. He lives in Baltimore. He's Baltimore white trash, but not the fun John Waters kind. <laughs> yeah. He's, yeah. he's the scary kind. Yeah. He's the kind that showed up on The Wire. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if yeah. anybody is being trafficked, that poor girl driving his dead wife's car. Oh, God. Yikes. Yeah, that, that uh, show is terrifying. I don't think she was dead. I think she left him, actually. I said dead, but I think she was just like, had enough of this, bye. That we know of. <laughs> Peace. That we know of. So, good news. We got our TV today, so back up in business, not having to watch shit on the laptop anymore for the show. So, I spent most of my day today just binging garbage. But that said, everybody should check out Aero Video's streaming service. It is a channel that you can actually get through Apple TV. I don't know if it is available elsewhere just yet, but like in the TV app where you can add channels in air quotes where you can do like your stars and Showtime and HBO subscriptions, you can add Aero Video streaming for like five bucks a month. So yes, it is just another streaming service. Mm, for me, there are lots and lots of Aero Video releases that I don't necessarily want to pay 20 to $30 to get blind bought and then like uh, mm, uh. but it's not stuff that you can really find many other places. There are a lot of Aero Video titles on Shudder and Amazon but not everything. So this is a massive chunk of their catalog so for me, five bucks a month for like a few months to burn through the majority of that to see if there's anything I actually would like to physically own is great. I, you know, it's totally a like preview before buying kind of thing. So that said, I've actually watched a couple of things so far. Um, I watched Madhouse, which is the one with the twins and the Rottweiler killing people, not the one with Vincent Price. I watched The Mutilator, which was some fun trash, and I was watching that in bed, and Heather was just making fun of it the whole time, because <laughs> it's just the worst community theater southern actors in it, trying to hide their terrible southern accents and like not doing a great job. But, going back to our previous episode with Blood Rage. I mentioned that Marion Cantor, who was the producer who played the, like, psychologist woman, she had produced a movie, like, a decade before almost, called Dark August. It is so completely different from Blood Rage. This is like a really grounded drama, maybe kind of thriller thing about this guy who is an artist and he and his kind of girlfriend live in this cabin, kind of out 
in the mountains, in the woods, and sometime before where the movie picks up, he had an accident where he accidentally ran over a little girl on these, like, mountain roads. And that little girl's grandfather uses dark fucking witch magic to, like, put a curse on him. And so it's just him and these other people, like this woman that they find who's, like, a spiritualist, them trying to break this dark power around him. It was very different than Blood Rage. I mean, it was, like, the complete 180 opposite. Like, it was very kind of grounded and artsy and kind of slow. I remember you texting me like paragraphs earlier when you were watching it. You're like, bruh, bruh. Oh, no, 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 no. Not that one. That So the the one that you're talking about is this next one. So oh, okay. I'm, I'm getting a mix up. The director of Blood Rage, he had only directed one other movie prior to Blood Rage called Scalpel. That's the one I'm That movie was fucking bananas. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of some shit that Brian De Palma would have done. It's this plastic surgeon who his super wealthy father-in-law finally dies. And he wills $5 million in all this estate to the granddaughter, the plastic surgeon's daughter. But she has disappeared for a year. She, like, ran away from home. And there is, like, an uncle in the picture who, like, got cut out of the will entirely. And the sister mom of the girl wife of the plastic surgeon died under like dot 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 circumstances but basically driving around one night the plastic surgeon comes across this stripper who got thrown out of the club she was working at got the shit beat out of her like literally the bouncer got like smashed her face into a brick wall and this bloody woman is just wandering in the streets he picks her up brings her to the hospital does completely like gratis plastic surgery for her but makes her back up to look like his daughter who disappeared and ran off so that she could fucking weird yeah this is a fucking Batman hush story it is it's exactly that so he like does this free plastic surgery makes this woman to look like his daughter brings her to his like giant palatial country home and tells her like yo this is the this is the plot that we're hatching you're going along with it I will split the money with you but you're gonna like learn to be my daughter you're gonna talk like her and I'm gonna train you to like know everything about her blah 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 so you can like fool them into thinking that you're the daughter who's come back so they do and it works and they get the money and things are great and it starts getting real fucking weird because this woman starts falling for the plastic surgeon but she looks like his daughter and it takes him all of 30 seconds to be like but you're not my daughter and they like fucking go at it and they like have a relationship and then sometime later ma'am sometime later the actual daughter shows back up and things get even more complicated. It was fucking wild. It is a much better made movie than Blood Rage. Artistically, technically, it is better performances, it's better written, it's better made all around, but it is just as fucking batshit story-wise. Maybe even more so. Worse batshit. Well, I mean, like, yeah, worse. Like, it's definitely more lascivious (laughs) for sure. It's definitely more lurid, but like, even more batshit in terms of like, the choices being made. There were definite decisions made in this movie. It was wild. Beyond that, the only other thing that I would bring up is I watched this movie on Hulu that had kind of made the festival circuit earlier this year called Wounds. Starring God's treasure and gift to Earth, Army Hammer. Is he? I mean, he's kind of beautiful. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of beautiful in that, like... (laughs) 
and that like John Frankenheimer's like seconds boys from Brazil kind of way. Large boy. See, I thought you were about to say Tom Atkins is the treasure. Oh, no, God. Aaron knows. I don't like Tom Atkins. Oh, he's and- told me a couple times. <laughs> The most baffling thing to me about Halloween I think they one's trolling you, too. I think the only reason he brought this up is because you're on the episode <laughs> now. A hundred percent. So, yeah, the most... I mean, there are a lot of baffling things about Halloween 3, but the most baffling is why anyone wants to fuck Tom Atkins, let alone all those women who want to fuck him in that movie. <laughs> Well, it's just the one in the movie. Well, no, it's two. It's yeah, also it's the two. like pathologist woman. Uh-huh. Yeah, and his ex-wife that he had two kids with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And just a mess. That was my first observation about anything with that movie. Is does Tom Atkins fuck? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's all he sees. And your doing. answer is always yes. Ugh, baffling. So yeah, wounds is Army Hammer and Zazzy Beats and Dakota Johnson. Okay, a lot of beautiful people in that movie. That's it's a bizarre. lot of pretty people and. I think Zazzy Beats is probably the most talented of them by a long shot. I think you should check it out simply from the standpoint that it is set in New Orleans. It is legit filmed in New Orleans. It is set in New Orleans. There are lots of New Orleans specific things. Do we ever? It's not great. Do we ever find out where they get their money to have that giant house that they live in in that movie? No, no. That's why I'm telling you you should watch it. It is firmly set in New Orleans. It is about New Orleans shit. Army Hammer plays a bartender who is definitely like working at some joint by the levees. And on the inside, it looked like like F and M's or something. It was not a nice bar. Oh yeah, yeah. so it was like one of, <laughs> it was like the gold mine basically or something. Yeah, something yeah. like that. But like he and Dakota Johnson live in a single shotgun that's really nice, and there's no fucking way that like they can afford that when he's a bartender and she's like a grad student. Unless it is literally like one of their parents' house and they like gave it to them. Like that's the only way that you own a house like that in New Orleans is if it was your family's or you are massively independently wealthy. But otherwise, do they like does the movie avoid what I've seen other movies do where it's just for instance in action movies, no. Oh, we're in a car chase on the bridge and now we're deep in the West Bank like two minutes later. Um, there was only one moment of that that I did literally point out to Heather because Army Hammer just casually like teleports from some deep in like uptown by the levees to like the quarter immediately mm-hmm. drives his truck across town pays to park in the fucking quarter dot 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 or like off street somewhere which where the hell do you park off street not, now not at jack's like most yeah. normal people do <laughs> yeah so he just like teleports to the quarter because you know it's like tony hawk pro skater 2 you literally can like you know take a ramp and you're in the swamp and then you're in the quarter well, um the funny one to me too there is a scene where uh, army drops old lady off at Tulane and where he drops her off is like the very front of campus off St. Charles kind of pulls into that loop where like the big sign is so it's a very scenic shot but that's not where her classes are like yeah. that's not anywhere near anything you know Aaron would drop me off at school a lot but it was not scenic street just off fret yeah yeah, yeah. Get right where right where the door is you need yeah. to walk into <laughs> probably probably going on those side streets that are like war torn pavement fucking exactly. bottoming yeah. out your car yeah. yeah but there's no like two lane sign and like beautiful scenery yeah. so there's definitely some goofy stuff so yeah i think you should watch it it's on hulu i think you should watch it simply because it is 
Nolans stereotypes to the max. Mon ami. Yeah. It's like it's like Gambit New Orleans. Yeah, like in the bar, it cuts to them in the bar, and there's just all your stereotypical patrons, and then like on the jukebox is literally just like Okay, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um But anyway, the concept of this movie is very interesting. It does not come together together and by the time that this episode drops i told jeff to watch this because i really think he would be into it by the time this episode drops he probably will have seen it but it's very lovecraftian army hammer's bartending these like kind of sketchy hipster teenager kids come in and then these other kind of roughnecky dudes the roughnecky guys getting like a real bad fight broke bottle stabbing face kind of bad fight and these teenager kids scram, but they leave behind one of their cell phones. So Army Hammer takes it home. He, like, figures out the code to get into the phone and just finds all kinds of fucked up pictures on it. And then the phone starts getting messages from somebody who's like, oh, God, it's after me. Oh, God, you know, you got to help me, help me, help me, right? And it just kind of has that, like, hypnotic quality like the ring where they just become, like, obsessed with it. Dakota Johnson is, like, his girlfriend, which... She's fucking terrible in the movie. All of her line deliveries are just kind of flat like this. Everything she says is just kind of, uh, just, she's awful. It's like, she's atrocious in the movie. I don't know what the deal, I don't know if it was direction or an acting choice, but dear lord. But anyway, it has this strange metaphysical, surreal kind of quality where it becomes very Lovecraftian. It's It gets weirdly cultish and interesting, but the frustrating thing is the movie ends in a place where like so much is left unresolved and unexplained and you feel like there's maybe another 30 minutes that's missing. It's a very strange movie. I think you should check it out just out of curiosity, but don't expect it to like really be that entirely satisfying. I think it's very interesting conceptually, but it doesn't nail the landing. Do you think Dakota Johnson is playing the character she played in 50 Shades of Grey? It's like that bad? Or? I mean, I haven't seen those movies, so I can't comment on like what her actual performance quality was. But I have seen her in Suspiria. As much as I love the Suspiria remake, she is my least favorite part of it. I feel like with somebody much stronger at the center of that movie, it could have really, really, really been something special. Also, somebody who can actually dance. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Army Hammer's also just kind of very generic in the movie. But Dakota Johnson's performance is a whole new level of just flat, what is she doing? Like, did the director tell her to deliver all of her lines like she's half asleep reading off of cue cards? Or did she make that decision? I don't know. It's weird. So that's all I got. So I know I talked a lot. What you got? So first off, off your recommendation, I went ahead and listened to the uh, Blank Check podcast episode on Joker. And (laughs) I liked their episode so much. I've listened to it twice now because I was very much on the fence with that movie. You know, I'd kind of been cynical about it when it was first announced. But then I'll admit I kind of was one of those people that got kind of hook, line and sinkered with the first trailer. But I think I was more impressed with the aesthetic of the movie like that whole Scorsese you know look that it went for but yeah it looks great like visually it looks really good yeah as it progressed I was like well they're really leaning hard on trying to be taxi driver instead of just trying to be something on its own I didn't like the Joker as a character like as an evil scary villain but uh, again it's one of those things where like why does 
does he get a, his own movie? Because the whole point is him playing off of Batman and vice versa. I think the best Batman stories oftentimes are Joker stories for the same very reason. But the Joker, in my opinion, can't really hold a story on his own without Batman or at least some hero to counterbalance him in. But anyway, I'm going way off track. But yeah, I listened to their episode and, you know, Joker seems like a mess of a movie. Um, the only reason why I'm bringing up this up in, on our podcast is because it seems like it has a lot of a lot of psychological thriller aspects to it. There's a lot of mean-spirited nature to that movie. I kind of was going in suspecting that, but I didn't realize that like it was kind of mean-spirited for the sake of mean-spiritedness instead of the mean spirit of a crime drama. And a lot of the stuff that they brought up, just the stuff with literally we can't tell jokes anymore and then that leading to violence is just so like oh my god white people we have it so bad right now right guys yeah comedy's dead because we gotta be pc no you just don't need to make like shitty racist jokes anymore be actually funny i haven't seen the movie so i don't want to talk out of turn too much and comment on something that i haven't seen but from what i understand the storyline definitely has some aspects of well society has rejected me and everyone is mean to me so I'm gonna be mean back and I've become the monster because they've been mean to me and I'm just so allergic to that storyline like I just don't plenty of people go through hard shit and don't feel like they need to murder people for it like get over yourself exactly and you know granted I'm not gonna judge anyone who liked the movie because I have also talked to plenty of people whose opinions I do trust that did enjoy the movie just for what it was whether or not you can look past I guess the deeper meanings or things that's trying to say is up to you. I don't want to spend too much time on this because I feel like half our audience might crucify us for hating on this movie too much. (laughs) So I will just say, do a little bit of research if you haven't seen already. If you really are like a huge Joker Batman fan, then yeah, give it a shot, I suppose. But you know, if you want a good counterbalance to all of the praise it's receiving, listen to the Blank Checks episode on it. They do a thorough job of just describing even the way I felt about it, but just like some of the more negative aspects of the movie. So, you know, but also too, like if there's any reviewers or anything you trust out there um, that praise the movie, then also, you know, see what they say about it and form your own opinion. Yeah, we listened to it. Their episode confirmed everything that I suspected, which was it looks great, but it doesn't really like have a purpose for doing what it's trying to do beyond just why not. Walking Phoenix is good, but he is just walking Phoenixing like harder than he ever has before. Yep. And that isn't something that always sits well with everybody. The story is messy from all the different things it's trying to pull in, but not actually taking a stance on any of them, which again, like just muddies the message to just straight up dangerous things like, oh yeah, if you get off your meds, you're just going to go crazy. And that's, you know, not maybe the best representation of how any of that works in 2019. I've said it before, I'll say it again, if there's a soapbox I will stand on, it's about mental illness, and yeah, the scenes that they described were just eye-rolling, like, I felt like we got past this in the 90s Hollywood version of mental health, but I guess not. Yeah, and and I think this is something that you and I definitely probably both feel very strongly about. Like I was saying just a second ago, this whole idea that, oh, because people were mean to me and I have hard shit, so then I, like, turned evil and turned it back around on them. So, yeah, something that I think both you and I can relate to regarding to mental health and its depiction in this movie. You know, I, I sort of feel 
personally, as a mentally ill person and somebody who deals with this kind of stuff, that no matter what other people do to me, nobody on the outside caused my mental illness. That's my brain and my brain chemistry. And it's not anybody's fault. It's not society's fault, you know, and I am responsible for how I deal with that and how I react to the stresses that I'm under. And it's my responsibility to try to do the best I can to manage it so that I can be healthy and be contributing to our society as a whole. And so I just, those narratives where people use mental health as a weapon and as a justification to treat people poorly or do horrendous things, it just really bothers me. And it really is such a distraction from the very real issues we have in our society about how we do need more access to things like mental health treatment and and medication and things like that. But we've got to look at it from a realistic standpoint rather than like you were saying, it's just something that makes you crazy and makes you unhinged and you'll do anything like that's not how it is also statistically mentally ill people are way more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrate violence so there's all kinds of mixed messaging there as well yeah and the episode does a real good job of kind of laying out this is also like whiplash right here but the episode does a good job of laying out kind of exactly what you and I have discussed before which just looking at like the first trailer that came out okay you have a good cinematographer you have a very solid cast you're clearly obsessed with Scorsese specifically Taxi Driver and King of Comedy okay fine but the issue that I've had this whole time with the creative side of the movie is it's directed by the guy who did the fucking Hangover movies and Road Trip and all of these like real douchey bro college sophomore kind of movies this is not the kind of guy that I need to go to for like deep actual cultural like let's break apart society kind of movie no not at all that's not the kind of person who needs to be making a movie like this that's trying to say anything and they make a pretty good case of why none of that works and it's strictly just because he's the one helming the movie so that's another big chunk of it that they discuss in depth as well and they do it in a way that's super informative as well as just entertaining because at the end of the day it's also hilarious to listen to them take this movie apart in the same way that I really enjoyed F this movie's take on Batman v Superman when that came out a couple years ago it just kind of went hand in hand with that and yeah again I don't want to shit on this movie too hard jokes on us because it's making all kinds of money and super successful right. it, is, it is now the highest grossing rated R movie of all time it is the only rated R movie to cross a billion dollars yeah what the fuck yeah that's fucking insane well and and again i i know a lot of people whose opinions i do respect um that did like it so on some level it works for people and that's cool if it does if it works for you that's great but if you're if you're someone that was originally like me where you're on the fence you may want to do a little digging on this before you uh you devote some time to go see it or you could just go see it and form your own opinion but the last point i wanted to make was well you know it's kind of a shitty portrayal of mental illness but then how who am I to judge because I'm such a fan of Batman comic books in general? And I kind of had a, my own thought process through that and through the lens of someone who likes horror. The difference between a Joker and the Joker movie is that society wronged me, so I'm going to go turn into the Joker. And the difference between the comic book is society has ruined me. I'm still trying to get by. I find myself in over my head. Oh, yeah, I fell into a vat of chemicals, and that's what made me crazy. Not necessarily like society, man. That was what clicked him into becoming the Joker. And he's more horrific in that way, in my my opinion, because Batman inadvertently causes him to become that. 
that. And the comic books, for all their faults, they still find creative ways to make the Joker horrifying without making problematic statements. And, yeah. you know, there you go. My other beef, too, is exactly what you mentioned a second ago, that, like, I don't care to see a movie about XYZ villain if the hero's not in it. Just like, I honestly still do not give a fuck about seeing Venom if there's no Spider-Man in it. So, whatever. I will say, I'm a little bit of a hypocrite because the only movie I would be balls to the wall excited for would be a Doctor Doom movie. I don't need the Fantastic Four, but if you gave me a Doctor Doom movie, I might be on board for that. Yeah, but I think the difference is Doctor Doom legitimately is the hero in his own story. (laughs) Yeah, he is a villain, but like, he's the hero in his own mind. You could spin it in that way. And so that's my thing with Joker. I think if they had made it specifically from the standpoint of he truly believes he is the hero and that he is fixing everything in society and blah, 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 blah. And Batman is this terrible vigilante, fascist, billionaire, evil guy who's just running this power fantasy, and he's the villain. Like, if you had really cast the movie in that lens, I think that could have been a lot more interesting. But again, there's no Batman in this. Apparently, it's just like some fucking kid that kind of shows up at one point and like, you know, whatever. Okay, we've yeah. fucking talked long enough about Joker, goddammit. Before it, so. half our audience, like, tanks us because we didn't like the same movie that they did, um, um, whatever that's life <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I don't I do not support the opinions of my my co-host I am my own person anyway uh, <laughs> on a much much lighter note as far as consuming of horror I'll admit I've been just neck deep in some Pokemon sword dogs I've just been playing hours of Pokemon Halloween is truly over <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, this game is about as far away from horror as you get Galar is so charming and there are so many cute critters. It is until you start really like looking into the small details and the underbelly of certain things. And I'll get to that in a second. But before I do, you know, anyone who hasn't played the game and wants to, I'm not going to be sharing any story spoilers or anything like that. But I will be sharing, you know, like Pokemon and some facts about newer breeds or whatever. So with that being said, Heather, some of the most fucked up Pokedex entries I've ever read since Pokemon X and Y are in this game. Okay. Um, for instance, there is the Galar region's version of, I think it's Corsola, is literally mm-hmm. a dead... Oh, the dead coral. Uh, it's a dead coral yeah. ghost type. And like the ghost comes out of the coral to attack. Yeah. They also talk about how uh, when you Dynamax Gengar, his mouth opens and literally becomes a portal to the afterlife. And that if you listen close enough, you can hear the voices of your dead loved ones calling you. Oh my you. God. Yeah. Phantom has been in the series for a little while now, but is apparently the spirit of dead children Mm -hmm. that got trapped in a log for some reason. Yep. There was also like the rumors of Kadabra and Yamask being former humans that died in horrific ways. I know with Yamask, the mask is supposed to be like its former face when it was a human. Yeah. Yeah. All the ghost type and some maybe some of the psychic and dark types even, but mostly the ghost types have some really fucked up Pokedex entries if you uh, if you read into them. I need to go read some more. So I'm not that far into it. I've only gotten the water badge, but of course there's always references to like, these are the Pokemon that we eat in this... <laughs> 
yeah. <laughs> region of the world. And it's like, oh, you don't want to think about that, do you? Well, and, and there, was, there was even like one of the more cuter looking ghost types that's a newer one is that teapot ghost. Mm-hmm. And apparently yes. that's supposed to be the ghost of a dead girl, like a little girl. Oh, no. Yeah, so. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, like they like really lean hard into like dead children becoming ghost <laughs> Pokemon. You have to go really deep and beyond the surface of the game because it is still very much geared towards children. But if you really dig deep enough, there's a lot of darkness to the history of like Pokemon itself with Lavender Town and the first gen mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Like at the end of the day, there's there's some pretty crazy stuff going on. Um, oh, there was one thing where I encountered a ghost in the Galar region as well, where it was like it was a random side quest where I just talked to an NPC in one town and they said, oh, it was a little girl. She's like, oh, can you deliver this to my friend David? They live in this town. And I forgot about it. Ten hours later, I find myself in that town like three gym badges later down the road and I'm like oh it's this old guy and he's like oh yeah my name's David oh you have a letter oh this letter is from Jan how's she doing these days she must be in her 60s or 70s and you realize it was a little girl who gave you the letter and she's dead so (laughs) shit like that oh my gosh yeah Yeah, so oh I have a really horrific ghost type Pokemon that I nicknamed Tiffany for some reason I also have the Zigzagoon, and it's only in the second evolution form, but its name is Ozzy. It's Ozzy Osbourne. And I nice. have I have another one named Alice that's like in my box for Alice Cooper. But I did see somebody online called a shiny one, and they named it Baby Metal, which was like my favorite <laughs> thing in the world. <laughs> it's like, that's the best name I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, so for all you fucks that don't like Pokemon, there is some horror. <laughs> Aaron, uh, there is some horror in the games. It really is worth looking, like, even if you don't have any interest in Pokemon to like read up on like creepypasta surrounding Pokemon and just other like horror related things about the games because yeah there's even some tads of Lovecraftian horror going on in it as well so that's all I got for horror is yay Pokemon. Pokemon's the shit whatever I'm so glad I never grew out of Pokemon. What's up fellow spoopy people? Are you shopping for horror movie merch to match the fear in your heart? Do you want to show your love and fandom for horror or are you just looking for the perfect gift for that special mutant in your life? If so, check out Nightmare Threads, your one-stop shop for all things horror made for fans by fans. NightmareThreads.com offers clothing, apparel, and merch for numerous horror movies, TV shows, and other macabre pop culture. Nightmare Threads also has original horror content, articles, news, and more. So you can support us by supporting them. Check out our show's Twitter and Facebook pages for our unique referral link or use coupon code WATCHIFYOUDARE, all one word, no spaces, at checkout to save 10%. So just go to NightmareThreads.com and again, use our referral link or the code WATCHIFYOUDARE to save 10%. Watch horror, love horror, support horror. Shop Sally! Okay, cool. And with that, we are going to move on to our movie that we're covering this week. And as you can tell from the title this week, it is The Vampire Diaries Episode 2 in Season (laughs) 1 called The Night of the Comet. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be one of the last people on Earth? We're talking ghost town! Who would you see? There's nobody. I mean, there's nobody. Ah! What would you do? Hey, I'm sorry if the end of the world makes me a little nervous. Where would you go? The stars are up ahead! Well, get ready to find 
find out because the comet is coming into your orbit. The legal drinking age is now 10, but you will need ID. Let's be real. It's the night of the comet. What do you give me if I come back? Texas. Night of the Comet. I'll be taking requests from all you teenage comet zombies. The night the teenagers ruled the world. Yeah! Night of the Comet. The burden of civilization is on us. Fiction, isn't it? There's your trailer. Anyway, so no, we're actually doing Night of the Common. It's 1984's American sci-fi horror comedy movie directed by Tom Eberhardt. Real quick with Tom Eberhardt. He directed a couple of other random comedy kind of movies after this. Like he did The Night Before with Keanu Reeves and new inmate Lori Laughlin. So uh, <laughs> he did that one. He did with out a clue which is like a weird sherlock holmes reversal where sherlock holmes played by mako kane is like just drunk and awful tangerine yeah <laughs> ben kingsley plays watson and he's actually the smart one um and then he did gross anatomy with matthew medinian daphne Zuniga, and captain ron of course but as far as horror goes tom eberhardt before down to the comet directed this movie called soul survivor and i know i've mentioned it on the show before it is exactly if you combined It Follows and Final Destination. It's a woman who likes is the only survivor of a plane crash and death essentially is trying to get her because she somehow like escapes death, but it's a lot like It Follows. She just keeps seeing these like really creepy visions of people around town that are like kind of coming after her. So it has that eerie kind of feel that It Follows has. So that movie's interesting. We might get around to doing that eventually on the show, um, but that movie is definitely worth seeking out for anybody interested. But yeah, the movie is about two sisters surviving the basically apocalypse um and what would you do if you were a teen in la in the 80s in basically what is the rapture apocalypse everybody is gone currently roxanne benjamin from southbound xx body at brighton rock and the new creep show show she is developing a remake of it which should be interesting because i feel like you know what as far as remakes go sometimes i i often do roll my eyes at them but this is one that i'd be interested to see a modern like a modern take on yeah and what direction they would take it in. Yeah, I don't hate the idea of a remake of this movie at all because I really like this movie. I would like to see more movies in this vein that take teen girls seriously and, you know, want to tell an interesting story with teen girls at the center and have them be heroic and really explore their characters. And that's what I love about this movie. So I'm definitely interested to see a remake. So this movie, the first time I heard about it, I think was just a few years ago. At this movie does at this movie fest every year where they pick a, year from film and then they select I think four movies from that year and everybody that's kind of into the site watches them together and this movie was one of the at this movie fest picks a few years ago and so Aaron and I watched it um, I'm not sure if he had seen the movie before but I certainly I had, had yeah. it and you know one viewing basically and I just fell in love with this movie so it was not something that I saw back in the 80s or growing up it was definitely something that I have just watched in the last few years but I think it still you know is relevant enough 
and interesting enough that it didn't feel old or boring to me. Like, it's a movie that can still grab a new audience that's just exposed to it now. Yeah. yeah. So, I think the movie still stands on its own, but interested in a remake, too. It's funny, too, because the first exposure I ever had to this movie was actually y'all's wedding weekend when I came in town. The first night I came in town, I think you were staying at your parents or with your bridesmaids. That was the night where me and I think Dito or somebody were the only ones staying at the house. I remember because we got drunk and watched uh, X-Men Apocalypse and made fun of it, but <laughs> I remember yeah. I remember you had just gotten the Blu-ray or whatever of Night yeah. of the Comet and it was sitting on, on your equipment and I picked it up and I looked at it. I was like, this movie seems pretty rad. Like, what is this? And you were like, oh, absolutely. You know, you need to watch it someday. Well, fast forward to last year when we started actually trying to get this podcast going um, and we made a list of like movies we wanted to absolutely tackle at some point and one of us mentioned Night of the Comet, but we both were like, fuck yes, this is on our list. Aaron, you had specifically stated that we should wait for a good time to have Heather come on to talk about it. So we, yeah, we waited till now because we wanted to get a little further into our library before we pulled out uh, Night of the Comet, but um, I'm glad that we finally watched it, just like Halloween 3 and other movies, specifically 80s horror movies. A lot of it was what I expected, but a lot of it was not what I expected. Um, Like, I was not expecting, and I'm jumping a little ahead, but I was not expecting kind of the emptiness that you feel in this movie. Not in a bad way, like, but the horror related to just how empty an abandoned city can feel for something that came out in the mid to early 80s. They kind of nailed that whole aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. And that would be something interesting to see in a remake because I love the 80s aesthetic to this movie. Yeah. The shots of empty downtown, especially when the sky has that kind of red color, like sitting on the car, like there are just some great shots in this movie that are so cool. Even if the remake is great, I am glad this came out first as an 80s movie because the original, this version of the movie, you can't make it without it being in the 80s. Definitely. I think a remake would also just be interesting from the standpoint that society is completely different than the 80s in many, many, many ways. Teenagers now are completely different from teenagers then in many, many, many ways. There are lots of like new, weird technological things to overcome, like the fact that teens have cell phones now, so do cell phones and the internet, and does all that stuff still exist in this kind of premise? But a lot of the main themes of this, like loneliness and like having to like stick together and getting rid of all the bullshit things that like keep us apart like race and gender and all those things and like finding your tribe and having to like keep going for the sake of like keeping humanity alive you know just things like that where it would be interesting to see and even like sisterhood yeah totally there are still lots of universal things like getting along with your sibling because you need to work together to make it basically and you kind of have to you know you still fight and disagree but at the end of the day, you love each other and you have to get through all the petty bullshit that you normally would go through to survive at this point. Yeah, and to Everhart's credit, he did actually ask a bunch of teenagers, what would you do during the apocalypse? What are some things that you would do? Like, where would you hang out? How would you handle that? What would you be worried about? So he actually, like, really went to real teenage girls. I think he even said, like, his daughter in an interview that I heard, girls that were working on the other projects he was working on at the time and just talking to them and getting ideas for what to put in this script. So it was very informed by real teenage girls and not just some kind of middle-aged white guy, like, infer 
inferring what he thinks teenagers might be anxious or fearful about in terms of this scenario. I think that is what makes this movie special because I think it would be so easy to make a movie about two teen girls in the apocalypse that makes fun of them or plays them as a joke or always has to have them rescued by somebody else or something like that. But this movie, I feel like it really takes them seriously. It treats them as, you know, real characters with real motivations. They are not the butt of the joke. This movie cares about those two sisters and I I really like that and I think that's great. That's what makes this movie special to me. I will say my favorite line in this movie is still delivered by probably the biggest douchebag in this movie and it's I'm not crazy I just don't give a fuck (laughs) I laughed so hard because his line delivery was so dramatically over the top that it was fantastic yeah that guy specifically reminds me so much of our friend Rob to a T (laughs) but yeah this movie definitely has a really interestingly forward thinking view on a lot of the social dynamics that the 80s weren't great about with movies like the portrayal of the teenage girls the fact that the movie is very diverse with its young cast just a lot of that stuff that like the 80s was still struggling with from a very like stereotypical standpoint like Samantha is a teenager and she is blonde and she kind of plays ditzy but she's not she's very smart and she's very witty and she's very acerbic and like you know she can handle herself you know she is not the stereotype that you would expect from this exact kind of movie. Well, and I I think both the girls even put on like a performance because I feel like it's their duty as teenagers to kind of be like that. But when a push comes to shove, they show their true colors of being incredibly competent and everything else. Yeah. I mean, this movie is, it is a comedy. Like that line you were pointing out is really funny. There are some good zingers and, you know, daddy would have bought us Uzis (laughs) is a good one. You know, lots of jokes uh, about the guns and stuff. The whole atmosphere of this movie is very interesting and the, the tone it strikes I guess because when you think about the apocalypse this could be so somber and so sad but it's really like a funny movie and pretty lighthearted for what it is so it's interesting how it sort of threads that needle of being you know a serious movie with serious characters but not also being like such a downer and to be kind of a little bit of a devil's advocate I'll admit my first knee-jerk reaction like right as the credits were rolling was kind of like ah you know what I was so excited about this movie but I don't think I liked it but as I kind of digested it and thought about it, I've come around and now I do really enjoy this movie. But part of the reasons that at first I kind of was not on board because all the aspects were my jam. You know, had strong female protagonists. The main male protagonist wasn't chauvinistic, oh. he, but he was also not played up as the fool either. No, Hector's fun. Yeah, Hector. Yeah. Hector's competent as well, but you know, but he he portrays a lot of positive aspects of masculinity. Yeah, and uh, the whole idea of having like everyone on earth disappearing but you has always been like a fascination of mine when it comes to horror but also even daydreaming like I've daydreamed that scenario in my head so much especially like during school or when I was at work or whatever and so it had all the makings of everything I wanted but I did go in expecting this movie to be like okay it starts off like they think the whole city is empty and slowly more and more these zombies start showing up and attacking them and then it goes like full-blown Mad Max but with zombies. That's what I thought was going to happen and it never mm-hmm. it never does. It goes in right. a much more sci-fi even drama way that I was not expecting and again I didn't expect this movie to feel so empty. There are so many moments in the movie where they're just driving cars
car around or walking around downtown and there's they're shouting they're playing loud music they're not trying to hide the fact that they're there despite that there might be some of these zombies around and there were little moments like that that i guess bothered me at first but then i stopped trying to bring the movie to my like high terms and started kind of treating the movie like i did with halloween 3 of yeah there are plot holes yeah there are ridiculous leaps in the plot of like oh she fell asleep in a shed why didn't any of the dust go into the shed at all and like infect her <laughs> but after i got over that and i came to terms with right. it's a cult movie for a reason it's a sci-fi horror comedy film i started really appreciating this for what it was there are aspects of this movie that are genuinely horrifying like i thought everything with the guys in the mall that attack them yeah was genuinely like some scary moments yeah absolutely especially in that basement scene with the gun where he's playing russian roulette with the little sister that was yeah. that was an intense scene or even just like getting kind of jump scared by the guy who opens the door and gets nailed in the head with a wrench by the first zombie in the movie that you kind of see well also running theme with 80s horror sci-fi movies specifically but just shadowy science corporation up to what exactly but we know it's bad yeah right? yeah. Like yeah that's that's always totally a thing to just what is amazon up to right now yeah. what awful things are they perpetrating behind closed doors just in my head while we were watching that movie i just was calling them the dharma initiative exactly like, i don't I, remember I have what that their in actual my notes. name is but that's what they look like to me yeah like their logo the uniforms everything about it is completely just ripped off by lost 20 years later yeah, yeah. are they a private military enterprise are they a branch of the a military what are they exactly yeah. who cares they're just evil fucks basically yep <laughs> um speaking of tv shows ripping off this movie later not necessarily a ripoff but i, I do know that for buffy this was a big influence on yeah. joss whedon when he was making that show yeah samantha's character specifically apparently like influenced his take on buffy a lot yeah and buffy is the name of their dog that gets dusted poor dog yeah with the dusted dog heather um yet another fucking <laughs> horror movie that has to fuck up a pet for no reason also <laughs> too i don't know if you caught the line of dialogue from i think it was hector when they first meet him where he talks about them ripping apart a cat yeah mm-hmm. going by some of the zombies eating a cat so what's wrong with horror why do y'all have to keep hurting our innocent fur babies <laughs> yeah i hear you i think again if we're gonna go along with the theme of our podcast of what are the actual fears that horror movies prey on your pets your pets exactly the fear that you're gonna like lose your pets in some awful tragic way that is exactly a fear that every fucking horror movie wants to play on uh, yeah. so far i think autopsy of jane doe was the most unforgivable <laughs> next to kill list both of those no. were pretty awful reanimator i we haven't done re- 100 reanimator we haven't gotten a reanimator <laughs> okay. yet um yeah so night of the comet uh let's go ahead and kind of run through it real quick and then we can kind of fill in our thoughts as we go so movie starts with a voiceover letting us know that a comet is passing close enough for the earth to be caught in the tail which hasn't happened in 65 million years which hmm what was 65 million years ago maybe the dinosaurs da 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 so were all the dinosaurs whose bones were preserved or they were the ones that were encased in steel and that's why we have fossils no i guess <laughs> oh yeah true i guess they would have been dusted maybe yeah, yeah, yeah every other right. dinosaur because even dusted. if they got, became zombies eventually they'd break down and get dusted yeah yeah i guess that was from their like massively technological 
advanced society that the UFOs built for them. So they were all like indoors in steel buildings. (laughs) No ventilation. Yeah. So the night that the comet is going to be passing by is actually December 14th, which should be, if we time this correctly, like right about the time that this episode is going to come out, which is why we're doing it now in December specifically. I mean, we knew we were going to do this with Heather, but, you know, we could have done it literally any time. But then all of a sudden I had the realization that this takes place in December, so why not do it now? Yeah, it's sort of a Christmas movie in the same way that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. It has nothing to do with the plot or anything that's going on, but it's like peripherally Christmas and there are Christmas decorations and they're playing like Christmas music It has as much to do with Christmas as Blood Rage had to do with Thanksgiving. No, 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 no. No, no, no. That's exactly what I was about to say is at least it has more to do with Christmas than Blood Rage Thanksgiving. This movie at least acknowledges that Christmas is happening a couple times, whereas Uh Blood Rage does it once at the turkey scene and then that's it. And then he just makes that fucking cranberry sauce joke over and over again. Blood Rage is wild. I'm just seeing that mom sitting in front of the fridge just eating the food. That movie is wild. Man, that's gonna be me like fucking Sunday morning when I'm just shot from working this weekend. Like it's just gonna be me sitting in my parents' house where I'm gonna be crashing just shoving leftovers That's your true horror is Black Friday. (laughs) Yeah, really. So yeah, the comet's gonna be passing by Earth uh, on December 14th because they specifically say it's 11 days before Christmas. So we see these like shots of these large crowds like getting together outside and there's like a big parade kind of celebration thing and people are having comet watching parties which I wonder like what real parade they shot for that opening scene. It was either like stock footage of an earlier parade or like they actually just went and got footage of a Christmas parade or something like that because it didn't feel like that was something they staged. I wanted to ask you that because if they did stage that, probably most of the $700,000 budget went into these shots. Yeah, really. So we are introduced to Regina Belmont, a.k.a. Reggie. She is working at a movie theater. It's the El Rey Theater in L.A. specifically. Um, And they are doing like a big giant celebration for the comet coming by. But she said, fuck that. And she's playing Tempest. Yeah, which is is a real game that I'm glad that they used an actual real arcade game in the movie instead of trying to make up some bullshit. Yeah. So I think this is where this movie like really hooked me. I mean, right from the beginning. I think I've talked about this on the last episode I was on, but I definitely play video games, have played video games since I was, you know, Super Nintendo, playing Mario Kart when I was eight. You know, I've always been into games and uh, have definitely heard, it's changing to some extent now, but have always gotten the like, oh, video games are for boys, blah, girls don't play video games, you're not a real gamer, you know, all that shit. And just seeing this movie open with this like super hot girl who's like playing, you know, arcade games, but one is good at them because she's all over the leaderboard and two is taking it seriously. I was just yeah. like, yeah, this she's my people, you know. So I was into it from that from that moment. The best part of that too was when she dies and she she gets on the high scoreboard and her name is all the way up and down the high scoreboard. Right. Except she comes across the initials DMK. And it's not even like the first one either. She still is like first, second, third. It's the sixth, but the fact that there's anyone else besides her initials anywhere on this leaderboard annoys her. And uh yeah, I loved that whole like character beat where she 
she like asking the the guy who, who's running the concession stand who's dmk does anyone know who dmk is she wants to fucking fight this person also was this movie like the originator of that trope because i distinctly know like there is an episode of seinfeld where fucking jason alexander is trying to keep a frogger console alive because he like had the top score or something like that so they like literally ended up like plugging it up to an extension cord and trying to drive it across new york or some bullshit there's also that episode of regular show where they're beating top scores and all that so like that's definitely like a trope in media dealing with video games yeah i just really liked that she was every other place on the scoreboard including above six yeah but the fact that anyone was even on the scoreboard pissed her off yeah reggie is played by Catherine mary stewart she was also in the apple which is one of the most insane musicals i've ever seen in my life so how old were the actresses that played the sisters they were both 24 when they were making the movie yeah that's what i thought reggie in this you can tell she's an adult actress but she's still close enough to they both pass they both pass there were moments with sam they a little stretching it but yeah for the most part they both really did a great job of feeling like teenagers which to their credit is something that even to this day movies struggle with oh we're adults but we're all in high school yeah (laughs) friday night lights comes to my mind just they're all like hot 20 something year olds in reality but they're supposed to be portraying like 15 16 year old football players yeah we watched scream uh at halloween and great movie got nothing against scream but they are all grown-ass people like (laughs) ain't none of them in high school But yeah, Catherine Mary Stewart was in The Apple. She was in Nighthawks. She was on Days of Our Lives for a while. And Kelly Maroney, um, that plays Samantha that we'll talk about in a minute, she was also on a soap opera. So both of them were doing soaps before they ended up on this movie. She was also in Last Starfighter and Weekend at Bernie's. So Catherine Mary Stewart has kind of been around for a while. And one last point, because this will kind of tie into a bunch of the next few scenes that are all setting this up is while that opening like dialogue voiceover tell like explains to you like what's going on with this comment and like how it's coming and why everyone is celebrating it coming by because it's been 650 65 million years after that the movie is all about show don't tell because yeah like this scene like you get oh reggie is really competitive and she has a very competitive nature but they never like outright come out and say like gee reggie you really are competitive at that video game they just show you <laughs> and then later on in the next scene or so when with Sam and their stepmother you're seeing like shots around the house and you see that their dad is military because there's like a picture of him and all his military gear and there's just a lot of stuff like that where it's just oh that's why they're efficient with firearms and they know self-defense because you can just tell that like okay their dad was special forces or still is you saw the pictures they mention it like once when but not even when it's really that big of a deal and then you're like okay yeah that's why they're so well trained in all this yeah and I just appreciate when movies do that like when they don't treat their audiences like idiots um, when they just are able to like show things in the background even to tell you stuff about characters yeah the photo of the dad by the way is the director Tom Eberhardt so we meet the projectionist at the theater and his name is Larry this fucking guy was like straight out of this fucking guy (laughs) this guy was straight out of like Night of the Creeps or some shit or any of the other 80s horror movies we've done with over the top bullshit like blood rage yeah which he's played by Michael Bowen who has a pretty good history of just playing asshole characters he was in Forbidden World he was also in Valley Girl which was the production 
production company that made this movie, Valley Girl was their previous big movie. He was also in Less Than Zero, The Player, and then he was in Jackie Brown, Magnolia. He's the pussy wagon doctor in Kill Bill. He was in Lost, Django Unchained, and Breaking Bad. Like I said, he has a pretty long history of just playing like asshole characters. So he has this whole plan where he is basically going to like loan out one of the rare film prints that this theater has to somebody who's going to like illegally bootleg it, right? And so he's trying to like wheel and deal and get this guy to come by and get it and pay him for it. Larry talks Reggie into like staying with him after close so that he could leave this guy this print. Um, And she kind of reluctantly goes along, but sure, why not? She doesn't have anything better to do. So she calls her younger sister, Samantha, aka Sam, which they do make a joke about, yeah, their father wanted boys, and that's the reason why they're both named Sam and Reggie. But yeah, Sam is played by Kelly Maroney, like I mentioned earlier. She was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Chopping Mall, Not of This Earth. Um, She was also in an episode of Tim and Eric, apparently, which I need to go hunt down. Oh yeah, what? Oh gosh. (laughs) And Heather Langenkamp from Nightmare on Elm Street apparently like auditioned for this role and was the original choice um, which what a different world that would have been if she had been in this movie and not Nightmare on Elm Street. So anyway, Reggie tells Sam that, like, she's going to be staying, she's not coming home after work, and she tells her, like, evil stepmother Doris, which Doris is definitely a piece of work. Um, The scene where she's arguing with Sam and they're literally punching and slapping each other is kind of fucking wild for an 80s movie. Even for the times, that was, like, kind of a shocking scene to see this mother and daughter, even, like, if it's a step situation, like, literally beating the shit out of each other. Sam calls her out, right? For cheating? Yeah, yeah. And not to get too bogged down in the weeds of all this early plot details, but this movie does pass the Bechdel test very early. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Again, not that the Bechdel test is like the beyond and all of what is feminist and what is not, but two named characters who talk to each other about something other than a man. Well, here they are very early on in the scene, the two sisters talking about what their plans are for the evening and the comet yeah. and, and all of that. So it passes very early. And I was thinking about it, I'm not sure that it passes the Bechdel test in reverse. I realize the scientists have names and they are wearing the name tags with their names on them, sort of. But like, if you ask me, like, what are the names of any of those scientists that are in there? I don't have a clue. Yeah. You know, and so there's Hector, who is your, you know, male protagonist, but... He's kind of the only named person, I yeah, think. Yeah, he doesn't really talk guy, to anybody yeah. else. So I don't think it like would pass it for men, which is, you know, interesting. It's different, yeah. Yeah, yeah men, we don't have enough shit out there. <laughs> Fuck this movie. <laughs> So, Reggie sleeps with Larry in the projection booth that night. On one hand, good for you, Reggie. Get that dick. On the other hand, <laughs> seriously, Larry? Yeah, really, <laughs> Larry. Yeah, like She can do better than that. Good good on her for like making that decision and going after what she wants and like being proactive around that. But yeah, come on, man. Reggie, Larry, what what is she thinking? It really um, almost seems more like a boredom thing. Like totally. like you're saying just like, oh, I have nothing yeah, better to do, might as really, well. She really like doesn't seem to give a shit about Larry. No. She just really <laughs> wanted to like bang and pass some time. Yeah. Cuz yeah. as we will see, Larry very soon bites it. She does not seem bothered at all. She not at all. Takes, yeah. takes that motorcycle on his honor way and we don't think about Larry again. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think she cries maybe like a sob later, but not necessarily about him in particular, just about everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, they stay in the projection booth that night, which he casually drops. Oh yeah, by the way, yeah, this whole thing is lined in steel, blah, blah, blah. I can't remember like why that comes up. Sam, in the meanwhile, she like sleeps out in the tool shed, which is also made out of steel as we find out later. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, I think she did it because she didn't want to deal with Doris after Doris punches totally. her. She was just like, fuck this, I'm out. Yeah. Also too, like kind of after all that, I do like that the movie shows you some scenes of like the comet arriving and like at yeah. first people getting excited, but then getting horrified. Yeah. And then it just cuts to black. Yeah. You don't you know, know what we, happens. We start to see like everybody, oh yeah, there it is. Oh wait, huh? Mm, I feel weird. Cut to black. I mean, um, what's the like lowest budget way you can show there was an apocalypse? What happened to people? Yeah, I don't know. Cut dirt. to black. Don't show it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, There's... and then you don't even have to make props to like show that they're gone. You're just like, here's some dirt. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's probably the best. I'm glad that they didn't try and go all out with showing you everything that happened. So the next morning, Reggie and Larry wake up and Larry's kind of mad and throwing a fit because the guy who bought the reel from him last night like hasn't brought it back the next morning. So he's afraid that he's going to get in trouble. So he like storms off downstairs and goes up back because he hears somebody knocking. Meanwhile, Reggie wakes up and she's like, fuck it. I'm going to go play Tempest. And so she plays Tempest apparently long enough to knock those DMK initials off the board, which I like how she just kind of plays hard enough to override number six instead of having to literally knock six all the way down <laughs> like six to seven, seven to eight, eight to nine, and then off. She purposely dies at the right part to make sure that she takes over the sixth slot and her initials are the only one showing in all the slots. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. It sounds ridiculous, but you know she could. You totally know that she could do that. So she finally realizes that Larry has just been gone for too long. So she exits the theater. And the, the thing is too, the whole, like the best part of this movie, in my opinion, is the whole aesthetic. The skyline is just drenched in red. There's red dust everywhere. There's people's clothes all over the ground and you're just seeing piles of red ash around where they used to be, which my first thought was like, there would be way more cars around, way more clothes yeah. around with the amount of people that were downtown. Whatever, you know, I understand it's low budget. Low budget. Yeah, but just the whole emptiness of LA with this r menacing red sky in the background, I just dug that whole aesthetic so much. Yeah, so Reggie goes to the backside of the theater, discovers that Larry has been killed, and before she is killed by said zombie, she literally just ganks Larry's motorcycle and takes off. So we get these really cool shots of her driving through downtown LA with the, just the emptiness. After beating the shit a little bit out of the zombie, like, yeah. this is where you can tell she knows, like, she's not like a kung fu warrior, but she knows enough self-defense to, like, incapacitate him. Totally. Stun it long enough to get on the motorcycle and get out of there. Yeah. She's just cool. I'm glad that they still seem to retain enough intelligence. Yeah, cognizant zombies at this point in horror cinema is, I think, pretty new and novel. The zombies in Return of the Living Dead are kind of cognizant, but not... But that movie's totally tongue-in-cheek and goofy anyway. Like, the fact that these are, like, very cognizant zombies is different, at least, for sure. So she's driving around. We see these like cool shots of the skyline. But yeah, like you said, there's just piles of red dust and clothing and just shit.
shit everywhere. The sky reminds me a lot of what people in the South in general have referred to as a tornado sky. Yeah. And it's when, like, the sky kind of unnaturally gets dark, but it's still very bright and yellow, and it has something to do with the weird ionization going on that everything kind of turns that weird shade of yellow. Um, And supposedly it's like a marker for potential tornadic activity, but it reminded me a lot of that. It's like a very eerie thing for listeners who have like ever experienced that. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Also, too, like you were saying about how cool it is to see LA that desolate and empty. Everybody fucking lost their shit when 28 Days Later came out and how they like cleared out lots of downtown London and how big of a feat that was and blah, blah, blah. And like, shit, they did it 20 years before in LA, you know, which arguably is probably just as, if not more, congested in the downtown area. They did the same exact thing for this movie with no money, you know? What I read online was that they got up super early in the morning to go film that, like, kind of right at sunrise when nobody's out and about yet. Yeah, and for some scenes, too, they had to stop traffic. But it was amazing how well they were able to get, like, the highway shots with just completely empty highway. Yeah, absolutely. There's something telling there, Mansfield, because if you ask me, like, what do you remember what sets 28 Days later apart from other movies, I'm not going to say that it's the downtown London being desolate. I'm going to say, like, rage monkeys that turn people into rage zombies. Um, yeah. And, but, like, whereas with this movie, like, the whole thing, for me at least, is hinged on desolate Los Angeles with this eerie red sky. Yeah. So Reggie drives the motorcycle home and she kind of enters the house and she's looking around for her sister. And this is kind of one of those moments of anxiousness where you are wondering, like, did Sam make it? Did she survive? And of course, you know, she just kind of pops out and is just like, oh, yeah, hey. And Sam is completely unfazed. Like, she doesn't realize that anything's wrong. She hasn't left the house yet. She just thinks that their stepmom is like shacking up with the guy like down the street. So she didn't realize anything's wrong. She's like literally getting ready for her cheerleading practice and doing her hair and makeup and everything. Carries the boombox downstairs with music blasting. Yeah. Which, that said, that cheerleading uniform is so good. The different colored shoes. Yeah. The pink and blue. The, like, rebels. The star. It's so good. And speed of, like, looks too, Catherine Mary Stewart in this movie has, like, such a fucking Sarah Connor look at the same time that, like, that movie was also coming out and being made. But, like, a valley girl version of Sarah Connor. Totally. Yeah, yeah. got the big teased hair. Yeah, yeah. Not like a that, that's a bad thing, but just like it makes more sense for a teenager living in Los Angeles. So you say not that that's a bad thing, that they're kind of valley girl. And again, that's one of the things that I really like about this movie. Because like I said, these characters, Sam and Reggie, they are realistic characters. You know, they're not perfect. One of the things that's interesting about the beginning of this movie is how sort of unfazed Reggie seems to be until she gets to the house and kind of realizes, oh, something is going on, but you don't really hear her comment on it too much at the beginning, you know? And they are, you know, Sam is silly. She's worried about cheerleading practice and she's in her cute little uniform and the two sisters kind of fight over boys a little bit, you know? You know, they're a little self-absorbed, a little self-involved. They are worrying about teenage things, but I don't think the movie is making fun of them for those things. Yeah, not at all. You know, the movie just lets them be. And I feel like that's rare, especially for teenage girls in media. There's so much out there that wants to make fun of teenage girls and make fun of their interests and make fun of them for behaving in a way that teenage girls do behave very normally. But this movie is not that. You know, this movie is letting them be silly, letting them be funny, letting them dress cute and tease their hair, but also taking them seriously. And I love that about this. A lesser 
film would make them like a stereotype for Valley Girls. And a lesser film at this scene specifically would have Sam do that trope of can't accept that it's the apocalypse for too much of the movie that a lot of these movies seem to do. But instead, what this movie does is that Sam realizes the gravity of the situation. She still stays true to who she is, like her mannerisms and all that are still very much goofy. But she realizes like, okay, we got to do this thing now. Like, you're right, where this is kind of cool, but at the same time, scary. I'm not denying the fact of the situation that we're in. Whereas I, I think a lot of other movies would have that character remain just like in shock or something and not accepting what's going on. I think to the writing and the performances in this movie do a lot for the characters just because that same character being a cheerleader, being blonde, like you said, any other movie, she would be a fucking stereotype. She would be airheady and ditzy in a way that is just so stereotypical it's not funny. But in this movie, she's airheady and ditzy, but still very, again, like smart and witty, and it's genuinely fucking funny. Like when she's telling Reggie about, like, yeah, fucking Doris punched me in the mouth, and it's so stupid that our diddle doesn't cover cosmetic damage, and you know, so glad she didn't like actually like chip a tooth or something. Just stuff like that, those kind of comments, and her timing is so fucking good too. Like when Reggie like shakes her, and then she just goes like, oh, I swallowed my gum, like without missing a beat. Just like <laughs> dumb shit like that, where she's so fucking funny in this movie. The characters definitely are aware of what they're doing. They're very self-aware. Yeah. So yeah, as Reggie's walking through the house, there's little subtle things like you mentioned, like there is the perfect little like dog-shaped pile of ash with the leash just kind of hanging off of it. God damn it. Um, R.I.P. Buffy. Yeah. R.I.P. Buffy. Also too, and I mentioned this to Heather and I need to look it up just out of curiosity, but I am pretty certain this might be the same neighborhood where they filmed Poltergeist. This particular Burby area with the houses, with the way they are and the design, like I really think it's the same area as Poltergeist. Like I wouldn't be surprised if they filmed like two blocks apart. And last thing too that I'll bring up specifically because I know you'll know what I'm talking about, Derek. Catherine Mary Stewart's look with the hair and the shirt that she's wearing and everything is very Excalibur era Kitty Pride. Yeah. Totally. It's like that yeah. blue yeah, like yeah, blouse yeah. thing with her hair all done up. Like that's exactly what it fucking reminds me of. If they made a movie in the 80s that was Excalibur, X-Men in general, yeah. this would be like the perfect Kitty Pride look. Totally. <laughs> like you mentioned, she's carrying the boombox around and they hear a DJ like still on the radio. So they get the idea that they're actually going to go to the station, find some other person who's still alive and just kind of go from there. But when they arrive at the station, they take the car, they drive downtown and get in. They discover that there's no DJ. It's literally just like a pre-recorded show on reel that's just been running. So Which that whole radio station just trips me out. Yeah, it's a I've fucking I've been wild. in a radio station before and it was just an office. Like. Yeah. <laughs> so that radio station was like what teenagers probably dream what the inside of a radio station is. Right, they yeah. imagine it's like, especially in the 80s, because it is 80s as fuck, neon everywhere, dark and like couches and shit like that. It just reminds me a lot of the laser tag place that we yeah, grew up yeah, with. Yeah, it looks, it looks like indoor laser yeah, tag. Yeah, there's just like right. the one desk, you know? Yeah. It's like the one person that works here and everything else is just neon. Neon. <laughs> Lasers. I would fucking kill to work as a disc jockey in that radio station. <laughs> <laughs> so... 
while they're at the radio station, they are caught off guard by another survivor named Hector Gomez, um, who also came to the station thinking that the DJ was real, and he kind of holds them up at gunpoint for a minute as they are all kind of kind of yelling at each other, like trying to figure out who they are, if they're like trustworthy of each other and everything else. Hector is played by Robert Beltran. He's mostly known for Star Trek Voyager. He started his career in theater doing a lot of Shakespeare stuff, but he was also in Eating Raul, which is fucking hilarious. Um, and another person in this cast is also going to jump up in that. He was in Lone Wolf McQuaid, which I only bring up because the actress who played Doris was also in that. And then he was in Bugsy. The cast of this movie has a lot of overlap with each other. Like, you could play two degrees of separation with pretty much any member of this cast, and they've all worked together in various capacities over the years. So, while they're all just kind of hanging out, getting to know each other, and swapping stories of what happened to them after the Comet situation, Sam gets in the DJ booth and actually starts live broadcasting. You know, she figures like, yeah, fuck it. So she like hits a couple of buttons and puts on the headphones and just starts like kind of doing a fake broadcast. Just as kind of an in-joke thing, she also mentions like, hey, all you teenage Comet zombies out there, which that was the original name of the movie. But she also tosses a copy of the Valley Girl soundtrack over her shoulder, just like throws it in the back. And again, that was the production's previous movie. While she's broadcasting, we are now introduced to like the weird Dharma scientist that we were talking about earlier (laughs) in this underground fucking cave base somewhere out in the desert. This part took me by surprise. This is where it's just like, wait, the movie's going in this direction. Where did this come from? Yeah. And they are all standing around actively like listening to her talking on the radio and they're realizing like oh shit there are other survivors there's other people out there what should we do should we go like get them should we leave them alone or whatever right so they're kind of arguing back and forth about what to do specifically and the two main scientists arguing are Dr. Carter who kind of sort of ends up being like the main villain kind of by the end um, and then Audrey White she seems kind of slightly disaffected scientist at this point and she's kind of trying to them like no leave them alone we shouldn't waste our time blah 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 like they're gonna be useless just whatever so we get all these like weird cryptic clues from this group of scientists but we're not sure what's going on with them yet right but they are aware that the girls are out there that there are other survivors audrey white is played by mary warnov she is also a veteran of a lot of genre stuff she was in paul bartell's death race 2000 she was also in eating raul with robert beltran for a split second i thought you were about to say Paul Blart Mall Cop too. And I was like, <laughs> yes, she was in Paul Blart Mall Cop. <laughs> she was also in Chopping Mall, which again, Kelly Mulroney was also in. Lots of big TV stuff. And then years later, she would be in Devil's Rejects and House of the Devil. And then Dr. Carter is played by Jeffrey Lewis, who is a character actor who's mostly known for doing westerns like Bad Company, High Plains Drifter, and My Name is Nobody. But he's done a lot of genre stuff too. He did Salem's Lot, the Toby Hooper miniseries. Series. He did 10 to Midnight, which that movie's fucking wild. That's a Bronson movie with a serial killer who literally just gets buck-ass naked to run around murdering people. He did The Lawnmower Man, and then he was also in Devil's Rejects. But yeah, like, the scientists are kind of debating the effects of the comet and what the symptoms are, and you know, you start to get really thirsty and dehydrated, and then your skin starts to get itchy and rashy, um, and eventually, like, you know, either you just completely turned into dust because of the exposure to the comet directly or you became a zombie which then later you would eventually also just turn into dust so yeah the the scientists are definitely
definitely like super dharma initiative i think they said there's 48 hours left before all of the redness in the sky is blown away and anyone who was exposed turns to dust or something like that yeah there is a weird moment where Sam has kind of like a weird series of surreal nightmares. And it's kind of one of those fun, like, nightmare within a nightmare things. Like, she wakes up from the first nightmare, and then turns out that second one is also a nightmare that she wakes up from. I was half expecting it to be nightmares all the way down. Yeah. Just, like, constantly going <laughs> into more and more of them. One of them is she's just randomly out driving and, like, slamming beer. And these two motorcycle police chase her down pull her over and they're both zombies that would make me like actually laugh out loud because when they pull her over she's just like oh shit i don't have my license and then she re- like just looks to the left and she's like holding a fucking beer can and she's like oh shit and throws it in the back seat <laughs> yeah as somebody who has anxiety dreams way too often i love how just there are so many things in that movie that are like bad anxious bad anxious you yeah. know like everything that she could be doing wrong she's kind of doing so yeah there's like a weird moment there where she just kind of has this dream with it and dream inception kind of bullshit but eventually, like, she actually wakes up. The first one was kind of goofy with the motorcycle cops and they turn to be zombies. The second one was horrifying because she gets up, you know, you think she's back in the radio station and, like, she gets up and, like, walks to the bathroom and starts stripping. I think she was, like, going to clean up or something at that I point. I don't know what she was going to do. Like, yeah, was she just going to, like, try to bathe in the sink or something? Yeah, like, she, so she gets in her bra and panties and right when she does that, like, from behind, another motorcycle zombie cop grabs her and just stabs her in the stomach and then she wakes up right then and that dream is way more horrifying than the first one you know i think we talked a little bit in the lead up to this podcast about depictions of mental illness and media and sam's anxiety is a small part of this movie but it is part of her character you know she talks about being anxious that when she has anxiety she gets a rash and that her rash kind of becomes a little bit of a oh is she a zombie or isn't she a zombie point of tension in the movie but i do like the portrayal of her anxiety anxiety because like I said I do have anxiety dreams I really relate to that feeling of you have something on your mind so you're trying to rest and you can't because your brain is just manufacturing all these terrible scenarios of what could be going wrong and I just related to that a lot and you know her anxiety is not something that defined her as a character it's not an overwhelming part of the plot it's just a little piece but it's a little piece that brings some more realism and dimension to her character and I think as far as portraying mental illness goes I think that's pretty realistic you know she's yeah. still she's still who she is she still has her personality she still wants to have fun she's still trying to do the best she can but she's coping with you know some aspects of mental illness at the same time and she uses like a little bit of self-deprecating humor from time to time too yeah 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 so the next morning hector tells them that he has to head back to san diego to check on his mom and family he just has to find out are they okay what happened to them but he does promise them like he's going to come right back you know initially they're like don't go don't go it's crazy there's no reason for you to go blah blah blah. Reggie and uh, him have been dropping hints, hitting on each other, but like really in a dorky like nerdy, cute way. They're kind of flirty, yeah. It's funny because I was just like, oh well so much for Larry when it first was happening, but then by the <laughs> end when Hector was leaving to like go check on his family, I'm just like, no Hector stay with Reggie yeah. because you're better than fucking Larry was. <laughs> Which to your point earlier, I looked up how far is it from LA to San Diego? Because we were just in California for vacation and there were some stretches where like oh from this point to this point it's seven hours jesus christ and you don't think about it because california's fucking huge right but i was like okay how far is it from la to san diego really according to google maps it's only three hours and that's like with traffic so the question is is there no traffic because 
you know, we see how empty, like, downtown is devoid of cars, or is it completely impossible to get to fucking San Diego because of all the cars on the road from all the people that dusted, right? So, here's my thing, my headcanon for this movie, because we see literally, like, what, one car actually on the road yeah. that's, like, empty <laughs> with dusted people in it yeah. in this entire movie. Like, I feel like the only vehicles in this movie are one motorcycle, or maybe two motorcycles, I can't remember. No, Hector drives an 18-wheeler, so 18-wheeler, a motorcycle, a helicopter, and then that random abandoned car that they go to a couple times. And that seems to be it. I think that in this world, most of the cars and vehicles got dusted for whatever reason, too. <laughs> so that highway's clear, and he's probably speeding because exactly. no one's around. That's what I was thinking at first. It was like, oh, three hours, but that's with traffic. Yeah. yeah, there's nobody on the road. You can just blast there in like an hour and get yeah. right back. And honestly, even if there were cars on the road, he's driving a big-ass rig. He could just plow through everything. Yeah. yeah. Well, the cars on the road were probably not inside steel garage. Yeah. <laughs> when the comic yeah, came. Yeah, there you go. And again, so this goes back to like my only small complaint with this movie is where the fuck are all the zombies? All the people who are partially exposed, which granted, we get a little bit of that in the next couple scenes. We see more people gradually turn into zombies than we actually just see zombies to begin with. Yeah. In retrospect, in modern time, like, yeah, I'm tired of zombies. I'm glad that not everything is zombies all the time anymore, but this was a movie I would appreciate it seeing like at least a few more like cognizant zombies right. that they had. Yeah. The stock boys were about to come across. They're kind of like halfway zombified, but they still look like just regular dudes. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part. Well, um, one thing you can say about this. So you're right. There are not a ton of zombies in this movie, but what ends up being scary in this movie is other people. It's the stock boys. It's the scientists who are trying to much exploit all zombie the girls. movies. Yeah. It ultimately becomes the the normal people that are the bad ones. Yeah. We are the walking dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the horror is other people rather than the zombies, which is, you know, I dig that. Yeah, yeah, I dig it too, but you know what? At the end of the day, I'd like a zombie movie that the zombies are the threat for once. Sure. So Reggie and Sam have a great moment where they're outside the radio station in downtown LA with fucking Uzis just blasting the shit out of a fucking abandoned car and just testing out their guns, which I love the comment of like, yeah, fuck these Uzis, they jam constantly, which the Uzi did in real life jam constantly, and that was totally an ad lib line where she was like, yeah, we should have gotten Mac 10s instead. That's what we asked Daddy for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where the fuck did they get these guns? But I think there was like one throwaway line of just, oh, I bet they have automatic weapons at the armory that, that used to work out yeah. or something. And I'm just like, I love how this movie knows it has a, a low budget, so it's not even going to show you like the scenes where they actually went and acquired the, yeah. the weaponry. Well, you know, Again, that's something I sort of prefer about this movie because, yeah, we could have spent a lot of time like bogged down in the plot. Oh, let's make sure we show the dust coming through the air vents and the weird underground yeah. science bunker. Absolutely. Or let's show them going to get the weapons. But instead of that, what you get is the montage in the mall or, yeah. you know, you get all these little character moments that don't really serve a plot purpose. And I would rather have all these character moments than I would have, you yeah. know. Yeah. Either go all out, like show everything or do what this movie did and just be true to your nature the whole way through. Yeah, this is yeah. a goofy movie. Like, I don't need the plot to be, you know, explained that well. It's, like, whatever, I'm willing to buy into it. Sure, because yeah. the other stuff is interesting. It's very economical filmmaking because if you're paying attention, you are either given all the visual clues you need to know what's going on, or if you're paying attention to the dialogue, the characters are telling you what's going on. Like you said, there there is a moment where they say, there's probably automatic weapons at the armory where daddy works. Done. That's the explanation of where the guns came from, you know, and you can assume that they went 
went there and got them, and now they're just back, because Hector also is driving to fucking San Diego to go check on his parents. There's time passing, and I'm, yeah, like Heather was saying, I'm kind of glad they don't get bogged down in a lot of that tedium, and, you know, I prefer the character moments as well, for sure, which, you know, at this point, Sam kind of has a breakdown, and she starts kind of crying, and she's just sitting in the car, just kind of having this moment, and, you know, Reggie thinks she's just kind of generally upset about the end of the world, but Sam is just specifically upset because who is she going to date? Where are the other guys? They find Hector and immediately Reggie claims him and she jokes about how Reggie always steals her boyfriends and blah blah. And like we talked about earlier, I like the fact that even in the fucking apocalypse, teenagers are still concerned with shit that teenagers are concerned about. And it's not a light thing, you know, like she's generally like, where are the boys? Where? Who am I going to be with? What does that look like going forward? And that's a real fear like in the face of the apocalypse what do in terms of relationships and there's a little bit of sibling vindictiveness too later on in the next couple scenes when they're in the mall where sam tries to like convince reggie that maybe he's gay this is where the movie shows that it's kind of dated by dropping a hard f-bomb right here but at the end of the day she still is a shitty 16 year old this is kind of an example of oh how the times have changed because i don't feel like she was judgmental about that either i don't feel like she was being shitty toward him about that you know she jokes like he is a guy in LA but it's not necessarily in like a mean or vindictive kind of way and for the other progressive things that this movie's dealing with it is just a weird marker of oh yeah the 80s when you could get away with that kind of ickiness so even if like the intentions are like not there in a bad way just FYI if you're sensitive to that she's more doing it to fuck with Reggie. Yeah. that's uh, And add a jealousy that Reggie and Hector are hitting it off. After they kind of have this heart-to-heart, which it's... I like how they kind of resolve it because Kelly Morney goes from actually crying kind of having this breakdown to, like, just immediately laughing again and, like, everything's fine. Sisters are going to get over it. And so what do you do to, like, lighten the mood? Fuck it. Let's go to the mall. So that's where you have this great mall montage of them running around and shopping and Cindy Lauper's blasting. Yeah, yeah. two girls just want to have fun. It's a really fun montage and sprinkled throughout these scenes are scenes going back to the scientists where like Dr. White, Audrey White at one point shows her trying to remember how to write something correctly so you're kind of getting this feeling of just oh shit the scientists are starting to have like memory loss and loss of intelligence you're starting to realize that like they're infected yeah something's up. There's another scene where she gets an argument with that head scientist when a helicopter lands and there are these two little kids that they found that survived and they're bringing them in and you think she's arguing because she doesn't want them in the facility, but you'll find out later why she was arguing them being there. Yeah. Yeah. I really do love the mall montage because watching that scene, you just get how much fun that would be. Like watching that scene, it's like, I want to go do that now. Like I want to go to the mall and try on like all the fancy clothes and do my makeup and spray expensive perfume and like run around in dumb shoes. Like it just looks like so much fun. Just the freedom to do all that with no inhibition is great. Kind of related note, there was that scene in Home Alone Two, where Kevin just goes to FAO Schwartz at night and just has the entire place to himself. And I, like as a kid, I was always just like, "That's so fucking fun!" Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of the same. Yeah, thing here. I, I think we all had that kind of dream. And is it kind of psychotic of me of the first thing that I would do is get like a baseball bat and start beating up mannequins and like breaking all the mannequins? 
Americans. <laughs> uh, maybe. That's a little <laughs> That's a little extreme. I wouldn't break glass or break things like that. I would just like beat the shit out of mannequins. <laughs> I did I told Aaron when we were we were watching this movie, this will reveal kind of how much of a nerd I am and especially how much of a nerd I was as a kid. But my get shut in overnight and have to stay there forever fantasy was not the mall. I fantasized about getting locked in the middle school library. And I was just there with all the books. <laughs> Nerd. Yeah. <laughs> Nerd. No, that's, that's fantastic. I, I've actually thought about getting like locked overnight in a library and how that would be. A, and I'm sure it's been done many a times already. But how that would be a good setup for a horror movie. Yeah. yeah. Or an, even an action movie. Well, I told Heather it's the end of that Twilight Zone episode where the guy is like, yes, all of humanity is gone. Just me and these books. And then he like trips and breaks his glasses and is just like, no. It's not fair. Yeah. It's not fair. And well, and then if we want to talk about some of the darker parts and horrors that this movie shows is take that innocent idea of having a mall to yourself and like you and your sister going crazy. It gets turned on his head right here because this is when like they start getting stalked by these three or four stock boys that worked in the mall and they're all wearing like shades. One of them has a shotgun. The other steals one of the girls Uzis that they had put down when they were running around the mall. Yeah. And like they get attacked by these like zombie stock boys. This gang, too, by the way, is the most stereotypical 80s punk gang ever. What was the fucking obsession with that shit? And, like, oh, yeah. Watchmen, The Dark They're Knight Returns. Like, it's the just warriors. straight up. Yeah, yeah, Warriors. Like, it's totally just that weird 80s obsession with, like, gangs are going to run wild in the streets. It's so much like one of those side-scrolling beat-em-up games, like Streets of Rage. Yeah. Like, <laughs> these guys are straight up, like, goons from Streets of Rage. So, yeah, the girls are basically held hostage by these guys and we get to see them kind of become more zombie-like. Like, the guys take off their glasses and their eyes are more sunken in and hollowed out and they're becoming a little more primal. That was a creepy moment when yeah. that guy removes his sunglasses. It's a very effective reveal. And that's where we get the line that you mentioned at the beginning of the show, which is, you know, they're like, you're crazy. And he goes, you know, I'm not crazy. I just don't give a fuck. I think it's after he shoots the one that Reggie takes hostage because it, yeah. they all get in, like, this giant firefight and the girls are handling themselves and they think there's only three of them but the fourth one shows up and like sneaks up behind Sam so they are holding Sam hostage above while Reggie has taken one of them hostage and they're kind of like trying to do a trade while the leader just straight up shoots his own ally and that's when like he says that line and let her go I'm sorry, miss. I can't have you holding one of my people hostage. Even if you pull the trigger, I can still take him out. And you. Come on, Willie. She means it. Miss, you're not getting the point. I can't have you holding one of my people hostage. You're crazy! I'm not crazy. I just don't give a fuck. That's kind of when, like, Reggie's just like, well, shit, I got to give myself up because this dude's crazy enough to kill one of his own friends. Yeah. So the two girls are tied up in the warehouse part of the mall, and the scientists storm the area and save them and shoot the other stock boys. So, again, these scientists just have weapons out of nowhere, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And going back just a little bit, another pretty horrifying scene is the head stock boy starts basically playing Russian roulette with Sam 
um, yeah. but is only pointing the gun at her and just constantly clicking. You see the other side with Reggie and Reggie's realizing what's happening and is like borderline about to start crying because like she thinks she's about to yeah. hear Sam get shot in the face. And yeah, and then that's when the scientists come in and just light up the stock boys. So the scientists basically convince Reggie to be flown back to the base and that, you know, Sam is going to stay behind and wait for Hector. In reality, the scientists plan to, like, do away with Sam because, like you said, they think she might be getting the symptoms um, of the comet exposure. Like, she said she had a rash and she's been getting kind of itchy, which again like she also said well that just happens when I'm like nervous or anxious or I've been fighting with my sister every time we fight I get a rash so Audrey kind of calms her down and then gives her an injection which she's just like yeah this will this will make you feel better and she's out and we are to assume that she has been euthanized again don't ever fucking trust a scientist when you know they're wanting to like give you some kind of medicine or give you an injection like without you knowing what it is exactly like Anytime a character is like, this is going to cure me, right? And the answer is just, yeah, sure. Dot, 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 yeah. It's never that, right? Well, and this calls back to, like, the experiment where, like, someone in a lab coat walks into the room and orders you to start shocking someone else in a room. Yeah. And a lot of people did it because they saw the lab coat and assumed that, oh, this is, like... Person of authority. A person of authority, yeah. Yeah. I love how we're having this conversation and I got a flu shot literally today. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or was it a flu shot? Yeah. No, nah, we're, we're, it's a flu shot. We're not anti-vaxxers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will not stand for that shit on this podcast. Which is why I got the flu shot, because yeah. I'm not anti-vaxxer. There you yes. go. You're my science, friend. Science is good. Science is our friend. Except in Until movies. it's not. Yeah, except in movies. <laughs> Maroney's death scene is really fucking harsh and just kind of sudden, right? Because especially, like, Audrey is being just so, like, motherly and gentle with her and so reassuring and Sam, Sam is like literally laying down on a couch like in some kind of like home goods store. She's so trusting. Yeah exactly because she's like mid-sentence and all of a sudden just kind of like fades off and then is quiet and that's that and Audrey and the other scientist guy just kind of immediately go back to their cold calculating like talking about plans which the other scientist kind of seems to be catching on that Audrey is not quite going along with Dr. Carter's plan and he's kind of trigger finger going for his gun and she kind of gets the jump on him and shoots him which now we know like something's up with white she's not quite in the scheme that the rest of the scientists are in but we don't know how that's gonna fit in yet so we then catch back up with Hector he has arrived at his mother's house in San Diego and finds it empty just like everything else so he's walking through the house and he's kind of having this moment where he's looking at family photos that weird picture of JFK and Bobby Kennedy on the wall. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That always trips me out. That's such a weird trope that you see, like, especially in older movies, people that have pictures of the president or whatever. Yeah. Like, Like, here's Ronald Reagan just on the wall in my house. George Bush and Jesus. Yeah. What was that song or music playing, like, this entire time he was in the house? I can't remember what it was, but, again, going back to this movie being, like, fairly progressive and non-stereotypical, this is a point where I think any other 80s movie, you would have gotten to the house and it would have just been like the most insane like Mexican hat 
dance music playing. Oh no, Abuelita was making tacos. Oh no, like just bullshit, right? The fucking taco bed from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah, like shit like that. I feel like the fact that the movie like shows Hector's family as just being a normal fucking American family and they're celebrating Christmas just like everybody else. The house isn't like distinctly decorated different or any of that kind of bullshit. Like it just kind of plays them up as like a normal family, which is nice. Well, yeah, and I I do enjoy how like Hector's house just, yeah, there are small decorations here and there that are cultural, but otherwise it's, it's just an American house. Yeah, it's not massively stereotypical. And then Hector is attacked by a little kid zombie. Yeah. Where the fuck did this kid come from? Well, I guess we can assume it's just like a neighborhood kid that like... No, I mean you know, like, but like, why was he the only zomb- only one who got zombified and made it through? Like, was his fucking bedroom steel plated or something? Yeah, I've, I don't know. But yeah, there's a little zombie kid that attacks Hector. And the kid in real life is the son of the actress Sharon Farrell, who again played Doris. So this is her little kid as a zombie. And then we just see Hector like grab a bunch of stuff and he literally... Is just like whoa, 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 and runs down the fucking street. It was a Scooby Doo scene, really. And I like, <laughs> I like how he had the gun aimed at this kid the entire time, but he just basically was like, ah, I can't shoot a kid yeah. even if they are a zombie. Yeah, but it did crack me up that like, why didn't he just literally run back across the street to his truck? But we just see him take off down the street, <laughs> just like running. Okay. And then when we see him, and again, he's in a different car. So clearly, he picked up a car somewhere. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so we then cut back to L.A. Hector arrives back at the radio station and um, dressed he's now as dressed as Santa Claus in yeah. <laughs> like in a convertible is carrying all these goodies with him. Yeah, and he gets back to the radio station expecting to find the girls, and in reality, he just finds the scientist Audrey White, and she kind of gives him a good exposition dump, catching him back up. So like she tells him that you know Reggie's with the scientists, and Doctor Carter was gonna exploit them to like try to come up with a serum and. She she reveals that the scientists accidentally exposed themselves to the effects of the comet and the dust because they fucking left the, like, ventilation system open, which, you know, amateur fucking move. And after she kind of says all this, she's basically just like, cool, and, you know, since I'm not that long away from dying myself, just fuck it. So she gives herself a lethal injection as well, and we see her just kind of expire on the couch. And, and this last bit from her is a really solid, interesting piece of acting in a movie that's fairly campy otherwise. It's like a very good, serious moment. I want you to know that I thought they were talking hypothetically until they found the first survivors. And they really did it. Some of those survivors were just kids. Hey, wait a minute. What's all this about? Blood. (sighs) They think they can generate a serum. A serum? We were exposed. Not a lot. Just enough. They left the ventilating ducts wide open. The fans going. Very scientific. Very stupid. In 36 hours, you will be able to vacuum up the last of them from the carpet. Hey. You know what? She was right. You are cute. Santa Claus. 
that I love her last line of, huh, she was right. You are kind of cute. And then she fades from there. And I like how this reveal is done because then you think back at all the other scenes where she was arguing with the other scientists, especially with that scene where they bring the little kids from the helicopter in. Yeah. That makes that scene all the more horrifying because you realize, oh, she didn't want anyone else to come to them, not because like she was scared that they would get exposed by survivors, but she was trying to protect the survivors from them, from the yeah. scientists. So She comes off as very kind of selfish earlier and just like uncaring, but in reality, it's, she knows what the scientists are going to do to these survivors, and she doesn't want anybody else harmed. So yeah, Reggie, back at their giant underground evil science base, she kind of starts getting suspicious of what's going on, and she escapes and discovers that they have basically been like hunting down other survivors and draining them of all their blood to create a serum. Like she finds these nurses with these other two random people like hooked up to machines just juicing them. And making them brain dead on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Just killing them, their brain, but keeping their body alive so that they can harvest blood. Yeah. We kind of skipped over that interrogation scene when Reggie gets to the base, but I do really like that scene. Yeah, she's that being, scene's good. She's being, you know, asked those questions, and she's just so completely disinterested in what he wants to know. But, you know, in a way, it's self-preservation as well. Yeah. She's being evasive, not giving him any information he might want to know to, like, use her blood. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, Dr. It's Carter specifically is asking her a lot of personal questions, like, have you ever had hepatitis? Titus, have you ever been pregnant? And she just unabashedly is just like, no, but yeah, I did have this scare one time, which that's a line that wouldn't fucking make it into a movie even now, you know? She whispers under her breath the longest three weeks of my life. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, like, I like too how she's answering him in a way that makes her still come across as like a snotty teenager to the scientist, but she's clearly yeah. doing this to avoid giving him information. Yeah, yeah, totally. All the lighting in this base is great as well. Like, I I love fucking neon in 80s movies and this whole entire base is just neon greens and pinks and wild lighting it felt like 80s dr evil's lair to me yeah so reggie like i said she escapes um and she saves the two little kids that we see earlier it's like a little blonde boy and a little asian girl and they're both kind of in their pajamas and clearly the scientists were planning on using these kids as well and it's fun because both of those kids are kind of smart asses too and then this is when uh sam and reggie catch back up with her because they pulls up in his car distracts the guards and like guard like knocks him out hector says i'm gonna stay out here and like rig up something so we can get away Sam, you go meet up with Reggie in the base. Sam catches up to Reggie and it's after like Reggie took care of these two nurses. And I love when like she pulls out the gun with Sam and I think she almost like shoots at Reggie or vice versa. And they accidentally like shoot each other, but they were able to like jump out of the way at the last minute. And I like how the kids also hold up their hands in a freeze position when she holds a gun on the nurses. The scene with the nurses is the scariest in the movie to me. Like once they've tied them up and left them with the sin to Santa a sign or whatever yeah when they're tied up and hooked up to the laughing gas like that to me it's is the really kind of stuff that eerie me. Yeah. yeah also hector's diversion is kind of hilarious because he was just dressed up like santa claus there comes to the cowboy <laughs> 
but now he like blasts up to the front gates of this facility in full cowboy clothing in this convertible and it's just like howdy partners you what y'all doing out here blah 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 and so he's pulling this weird cowboy routine to like fuck with these guards and the guards are like what are you doing you gotta turn around blah 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 and he's like nah but come here I gotta show you something in my trunk and this is when we get the reveal that oh yeah Sam is actually still alive she just got a sedative earlier that knocked her out um and she's like hiding in the trunk with a gun and they take care of the two guards but yeah Hector is just putting on a fucking wild show and I love this one line where he just says like turkey crap through a tin horn (laughs) (laughs) whatever the fuck that means And apparently, in the original script, Sam was legit supposed to die. And at some point in the production, they were just like, yo, we can't do that. The audience will turn on us so fucking hard if we, like, actually kill her off. Was the original idea to have Audrey White actually inject her and kill her? Yeah. Oh, wow. That was, like, the original, like, script. As that would have made Audrey White's character even more, like, layers upon layers of complexity to it. Yeah. It sort of doesn't make sense now as it is, because, like, why would she sedate her if she's good? But that's the point where we're just going to hand wave that and not think about it too much. Well, she sedated her to, to throw like, off the other scientist. Other scientists, uh, okay. yeah, like, think sure. that she had, like, actually euthanized sense. her. You in reality, she just gave her a sedative. Smart. But actually killing her, like, what does that actually get you from the plot if that was the script original. Like, it makes so much more sense that, nah, we gotta keep her in, right? So anyway, Sam and Hector, like you said, they kind of storm the base. Hector is rigging things up outside. Reggie gets the kids. Dr. Carter and the rest of the scientists, we start to now realize that they are getting zombified. Like, they're kind of looking skullish and their eyes are sunken and they're kind of becoming more groany. And all the scientists kind of gather around this one giant tanker truck, which Hector rigged to explode. He got up underneath it and rigged it and, you know, they blow it up so that takes out Dr. Carter and the scientists and they all drive away, so... With one more, like, little jump scare of a stray zombie scientist attacking them. Yeah, really. That, like, what a wild, just last minute, oh, by the way, but, like, not even, like, anything that big. They just kind of like, oh, another one? Kick him off. He's good. (laughs) The next morning, we see the rain washing away all the red dust and all the, like, sky clearing up and... All the clothing, like, literally going down storm drains. So just bye-bye people gunk, I guess. (laughs) Goodbye, like, most of humanity, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. So the skies are now a clear blue. All the people dust is gone. So now we're in, like, this new age. So Reggie and Hector are, like kind of sort of dressed up for like a shotgun wedding like Hector is now wearing a suit and Reggie has on like this weird like froofy dress thing. They're acting incredibly like parenty towards the two kids that they rescued as well. Yeah literally like overnight they are now like full-blown nuclear family mode which Sam again is now like really in that moment of oh shit well now y'all have happiness and you and Hector together now y'all literally have kids out of fucking nowhere like what the fuck am I supposed to do and right Right as Sam is crossing the street, she's almost hit by this convertible that just blasts out of nowhere. And we see that it's driven by this cute young guy named Danny Mason Keener. And there's this great moment where he's just like, oh, hey, what's going on? Didn't see you there. And Sam's like, cool, taking my shot. Bye. There were other survivors. And what was that line that she utters that Reggie uttered earlier when like Sam was kind of bemoaning the fact that they're now acting like a married couple? It's for the good of civil 
civilization or the good of humanity or something something like that, like that yeah for the future of humanity or something like that but yeah sam basically like sees her shot and takes it so she just hops in this dude's convertible and they drive off into the sunset and we see his license plate which says dmk so that's kind of a fun callback to the beginning of the movie i do love the dmk reveal if i'm having to be honest though this is one part of the movie that i don't like as much i have nothing against hector i like hector he's a fun character you know his role is good but he has no chemistry with reggie really at no. all no it, <laughs> it's very it, forced <laughs> Yeah, it definitely reeks of, like, very compulsory heterosexuality. Like, oh, here are two, like, attractive young people, male and female, in proximity to each other. So, they must date. You know what I mean? No chemistry. Even to, like, the nth degree, it's like, well, we have these two leftover kids. Well, what do? Well, this is perfect nuclear family, so that's what it's going to be. It's like a very strange whiplash moment where all of a sudden, like, Reggie throws away, like, all the things that made her so interesting earlier and now she is full 80s soccer mom mode and she's literally telling the kids like yeah don't cross the street without like looking for the signal that's bad and we gotta teach these kids the right way and blah 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 and set a good example and Hector is like literally throwing their guns in the trash can and it just seems like this weird hunky dory like they literally are playing football in the middle of the street as the credits are rolling so it's just a strange all of a sudden thing that football scene during the credits was straight out of the room football scene because <laughs> he's in yeah. that fucking him and the the little boy are in tuxes and they're throwing around the football sure but when has reggie in this movie been like the rule following you know do exactly or, you know it just yeah. it just seems odd yeah it, she's very out of character in this last scene in yeah my opinion. the movie as a whole lives and dies by the two sisters like if yeah. they were not captivating if you're not interested in them there is no film you're not watching this otherwise because the plot certainly is not going to hold you you know and so I wish it had ended more with them together as a unit rather than just like split off into heterosexual pairs but you know what are you going to (laughs) do yeah it just seems like a weird way to end the movie and it does make me wonder like did they not really have an ending in the script or was this ending of the script something like really big and bombastic and again because of budget limitations they just couldn't do what they wanted to do and maybe it was just like well fuck it like pick up shoot tomorrow we'll film this and that's that so I don't know but it does seem very weird and again if the remake ever goes through and happens yes I agree with Heather I would like to see an ending where the two sisters forge that bond even harder and like stick together through thick and thin instead of just like first boy gotta go I think a better ending of this is keep it the same for the most part, but don't have this whole like nuclear family. Like, yeah, like just have them be in the regular clothes and they're all walking together towards the street. You could have Sam maybe have like a throwaway line of like, man, who am I going to like meet in the apocalypse? And then DMK shows up and she jumps in his car and takes charge of that situation. Because I still think that is very true to Sam's character based off of the things she was saying throughout the movie and the way she was acting. What Reggie does with Hector in this is very out of character to me. Yeah, like, it would make sense if DMK pulled up and all of them were like, cool, we all need to stick together if we're gonna, like, make this work, and everybody just gets in the convertible and they all ride off in the sunset. Yeah, that would be great, because I do like it coming back to DMK. Like, the first time I saw those initials when the car pulled away when I watched this movie for the first time, I was like, 
you know, it's just a great little moment. Great callback to the, you know, to the earlier yeah. scene. Yeah, and even if they don't, just have it be like, oh, take me around the bo- block real quick before we pick up my sister and, and the kids or something like that. Yeah, you can set it up to where, like, Sam is obviously going to try and get with Danny, but you don't have to have Reggie doing this whole, like, mom mode out of nowhere. Yeah, totally. So, as far as things that are actually genuinely scary in this movie that otherwise is ostensibly a comedy with sci-fi and horror elements. You know, I definitely think that, like, the entire idea of it's the end of the world, everybody's gone. Not just there was a bad event, but there are still lots of people, lots of people have died. Just everybody's gone, period. That's kind of terrifying. For someone like me that kind of thrives with people around and I need human interaction, that idea of just poof, everybody in your life could basically just be gone in a moment, that's kind of terrifying to me. Yeah, and I mean, even for me and Heather, uh, you might feel the same way. Even for me as an introvert who has daydreamed, I've literally daydreamed of this scenario of being like, man, it'd be pretty cool if everyone on Earth but me disappeared. But I think in the long run, I would have a mental break. Breakdown, I couldn't handle it because mm-hmm. I still need people and people I love around me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, one of the things where if this wasn't a comedy, but it was trying to be something more serious, but went this route, it would have fallen on its face. The fact that, oh, everyone disappeared. Oh, we're going to have like maybe a couple seconds of shock and sadness. And then the girls and everyone are just like, cool. Now teenagers run the world <laughs> for the rest of the movie. Like, But the fact that it's a comedy and it doesn't try to hide the fact of what it is, it works really well. Yeah. Well, and again, uh, as far as legit horror goes, the whole mall scene of it starting off as this really fun montage and becoming really dark really quick, even if the stock boys are really bombastic and over the top evil. It's still like that threat of violence. A totally innocent thing becomes really dark really fast. Mm -hmm. I think when this movie does reach for horror and tries to depict things in a more horrific manner, it does work. You know, I think the double dream sequence that we talked about works. I think we've all talked about the effectiveness of the mall scene. I do really think the kind of turnaround against the nurses is very, you know, there are lots of revenge films out there and that's a classic trope out of some kind of revenge film, like seeing the situation that they were trying to put others in get reversed on them. And I think that's the scariest image in in the movie to me. So when it goes there, I think it's successful, but the tone is interesting because it's not a dark or a heavy movie. So I'm not saying, you know, I wouldn't say it's not successful at being a horror movie, but it definitely doesn't stick that mood throughout. What makes that scene even more horrifying with the nurses? Yeah. And they're just kind of yeah. laughing, obviously, like about to pass out from too much gas and the other scientists are like, oh, should we like disconnect them? And Dr. Carr's like, ah, oh, fuck them. And then walks yeah. off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's scary. And then also too, just even everything with the scientists leading up to that of like the idea of they were willing to sedate kids make them brain dead and drain their blood to survive and they were doing that to all the other survivors before them i do hope that if the remake of this movie goes forward and is made that it's different from this movie in some way because you don't need to remake this movie over like it's it's interesting it stands on its own i think people from our age or people from 2019 can go back and watch this movie and still enjoy it for what it is but i would like to see you know maybe they try to remake this movie but lean harder into the horror instead of making it as comedic. That could be an interesting way to do it. Have the same kind of story and premise and similar characters, but make it tonally different so it feels like a different movie. Yeah. Uh, Once again, we tackle a crazy 80s horror cult classic. 
I feel like uh, that's been our, our theme for this year is cult movies and crazy 80s <laughs> movies. Generally speaking, yeah. And again, this is the last kind of lightweight movie that we'll do for a minute. So it's about to get a little heavy going forward. Not that the next movie won't have some fun shit in it, but it's going to be a little little heavy from now on. I think I would just say if this is a movie that you haven't seen, it's absolutely worth watching. Like, one, it's short, so you're not committing yeah. a lot of time. But this movie has a lot of charm and there is a lot to love and appreciate about it. So I think, is it perfect? No. Is the plot silly? Of course. But there is a lot to love and a lot to enjoy. So yeah, make yourself some popcorn and uh, enjoy yourself. And as, yeah. as an early uh, portrayal of strong female protagonists, yeah. very well done. Yeah. Totally. Cool, cool. That's it for this episode, y'all. Once again, thank you for my lovely wife, Heather, coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Once again, we want to thank my little brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for the music bumps, the beginning and the ends of the episodes. Check his stuff out on Bandcamp for sure. Also, shout out to anyone who donated money to help with the food bank here in Mississippi. It was kind of weirdly last minute that I posted all that up, but Heather was able to raise like a good chunk of money to get a lot of food um, and she's actually about to be dropping all that off tomorrow so thank you to anybody who donated to that and beyond that you know we're watch a few day earth podcasts check us out on apple Podcasts, stitcher google play spotify podbean Castbox, uh, Castbox, yeah all that uh, shit so any of those of course check out our nightmare threads referral link yep again you can use code watch at checkout at nightmarethreads.com to save 10%. And yeah, all our social media shit is at watch if you dare like usual. Yep, yep. So in closing, Derek, I just have one more thing to say to you. What's that? You were born with an asshole. You don't need a Sally. (laughs) 